Welcome to another Growth Masters Federal podcast with your host, Shirley Collier, president and founder of Scale to Market. Scale to Market helps businesses think, plan, collaborate, and prosper in the federal marketplace by developing and executing customized, comprehensive, data-driven business development playbooks. The question is simple. How does one price a proposal to win while ensuring the work will be profitable? The answer is anything but simple, and the fact is that contractors large and small don't know how to accomplish this critical element of competing for federal contracts. In today's discussion, Jed Kreitman, founder and CEO of Jed Forecasts, explains the systematic process of budgeting and forecasting that should guide your pricing strategy. And now here's your host, Shirley Collier, with her guest, Jed Kreitman. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, Shirley here. My guest today is Jed Kreitman, CEO of Jed Forecast. Jed is the founder and CEO of Jed Forecast, which helps government contractors to win contracts, maximize financial performance, and manage growth through proper budgeting, forecasting, and pricing. Jed has very practical financial experience in government contracting, and I'm very excited about talking to him today. Welcome, Jed. Thank you, Shirley. It's my pleasure being here with you today. So, Jed, our topic today is about properly pricing a federal bid or proposal. Our audience is primarily small businesses. So how would you define the problem that most small businesses have when it comes to understanding, preparing for, and practicing competitive pricing? Well, Shirley, some of my clients are very new to government contracting and they don't even have a cost structure with indirect cost pools and rates defined in a way that is acceptable to the government. Secondly, many don't understand the impact that an opportunity can have on its indirect rates, and so they don't know how competitive they can be. Let's make sure that our audience is familiar with some of the basic terminology that we're going to be using in this discussion. What is the definition of indirect rates? Indirect rates are used to price in cost of the organization. They're not specific to any one direct contract. These costs are typically classified as fringe, overhead, material handling, and general and administrative costs, and include employee benefits, executive management, finance, human resources, and other back office support costs. Okay, that makes sense. So how does a particular opportunity then have impact on a company's indirect rates? Okay. Well, the rates are the proportion of expense in the pool to the base that it is allocated across. So when you win work, you increase the bases of the indirect pool by the amount of the salaries paid to the new contract staff. And that will lower the indirect rates. Those reductions are offset by any additional overhead costs required to support the new volume of work, like additional finance and contract staff and and maybe additional HR support. But you only have one president and CFO and controller and director of contracts, so not all of those costs scale with the new volume. So why is it so important to get pricing right? Well, because if you're too high, you're going to lose. And if you just go low to win without an understanding of the impact on the business, 
and you might not be able to staff upon award and execute the contract. Meaning that you won't have the revenue to attract the talent necessary to fulfill the contract? That is right. There won't be enough room in your rate to pay a competitive salary and cover the costs required to serve the customers, care for the employees, and manage the business of the company. So what I hear you saying is that a contractor has to think more broadly than how low do I need to go to win this work. They have to be cognizant of how their indirect rates will change and be forward-looking to ensure that they'll have enough margin to hire the right people upon award. Yes, Shirley. They need to plan for the salaries and overhead required to support the work in order to be able to achieve an acceptable margin. To maintain your competitiveness, that might mean structuring the company efficiently to minimize the overhead component. How have you seen companies restructure their companies to be more competitive? I think there are two things involved in achieving that. Companies manage their costs. The management of the company reviews the actual results versus forecast and budget each month to understand where expenses are being incurred relative to the revenue inflows. They make decisions on month-to-month spending going forward based on that context. Two, intermediate pools. Without them, there's a tendency for general and administrative rates to balloon, and that is not looked on favorably by the government. Explain a little bit more about intermediate pools. As I mentioned, G&A can often be perceived by the government customers in an unfavorable light. Intermediate pools are a way to take some costs that are often accounted for as G&A expenses, for example, human resources expenses, and spread them across overhead, M&H, and G&A. That helps lower the G&A rate and makes the pricing look better. Okay, that makes sense. So how would you describe, then, the three to five best practices that lead to a high win rate? First, the salary estimates should be based on something that is objective and flexible to support those salary estimates, um, not current employees. Second, model the impact of the opportunity on the indirect rates and know the competitive indirect rate range of the marketplace you're competing in. The competitive range of wrap rates is not the same for cybersecurity work in the Intel community as it is for SEA-covered administrative support services for the Army. Let's break this down a little bit. Where can companies obtain market data on labor pricing and on indirect rates? There are some good salary surveys out there. The Economic Research Institute ERI salary survey is good. I understand that the government uses it as well and think it's a fine choice. I personally like the Western Management Group Government Contractors Salary Survey because I've been able to download the salary survey data and build efficient labor category rate pricing tools for operations and finance staff. And then it's the financial and operations managers and executives who have experience working in the different market segments and with the different customers, they know what the range of competitive rates are that win the contracts. There are also consultants that can analyze individual companies and map out a range 
that the company is likely to bid. I know the competitive range of some marketplaces, and if I'm working in one that I don't, then I'll ask around, and normally I can just find out that way. Is it possible to find the labor rates of my competitors, for example? Yes, you can look at GSA schedules and other public sources for some labor category rates, but it's difficult to really understand how they might use them or discount them in a given situation. The consultants I mentioned can tease out estimated salaries and and predict a range of indirect rates that they might employ from the publicly available rates, but it, it is really difficult work to do. I know it is. I know it is. I know a lot of my small clients uh, really struggle with this. Uh, so many of them think that they can FOIA a contract and find out what the winning bid was, what the labor rates are on the winning contract. Is that possible? No, they'll give you the total price that, that they won by, but they, they won't give you the details of, of the pricing. Okay. Now, you were talking about wrap rate earlier. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes. The wrap rate is the total impact of fringe, overhead, and general and administrative indirect rates on your billing rates. If we had a company that applied 70 cents of indirect costs for each dollar of direct labor, then they would have a wrap rate of 1.7. Now, some small contractors have a hard time distinguishing between overhead and GNA. Can you clarify how those costs are categorized? Surely, that's really an interesting question, and I have to apologize for not having an easy answer. Companies can define what they classify as overhead, GNA, and in some cases, fringe. Small companies often don't have to file a disclosure statement and can change how they classify expenses year-to-year with respect to the impact those changes might have on, on existing government contracts. Generally, uh, in overhead, you have non-fringe costs that support the direct workforce and GNA costs that support the operation of the business. So what is one of those cost categories that you have seen defined as overhead in some circumstances and GNA in others? And is there a benefit to selecting one category over another? A common debate is over costs related to the development of white papers and customer demonstrations. And again, if, if I can legitimately avoid classifying something as GNA, then then I'll do that. Okay, good. Good. And why is it important to determine and monitor your wrap rates? Well, all companies are drawn from the same labor market and with the same salary demands. So what tends to set them apart in their pricing is their ability to manage and minimize the indirect costs and and the resulting indirect rates and and wrap rates uh, that, that come from that. So does the government calculate your wrap rate and use that in their evaluation criteria? Absolutely. But I'd also add that they tend to be sensitive to what kinds of costs you include in your wrap rate. The government tends to look positively on fringe costs that support the workforce that serves them and less favorably on general and administrative costs. You know, I've heard that before as well. The government seems to understand and encourage fringe benefits for employees, but frowns upon such things as fancy offices. That is the message that I've received in my 20-plus years of experience working with government contracts. (laughs) 
So, Jed, I interrupted you earlier. You gave us three best practices to improve proposal win rates. Are there others? The fourth one is fee, and fee is always the hot button with the customer. And uh, the trick is to reasonably scale it with the contract type, uh, going on the lower end with cost plus and towards the higher end for fixed price. And, and that's what it has to do uh, with the risk of the government and the risk of the contractor within those different contract types. And then finally, be compliant. Pay attention to what the RFP is requesting and provide documentation to support all of your assumptions. So I want to explore both of those, beginning with the definition of fee in this context. Fee represents margin to the contractor. And the government understands that contractors need to be profitable, but they just don't want them to be too profitable. Margin meaning profit margin. And how can you find out what an acceptable fee might be to the government? Well, what I know um, to be true in my time, that it's generally for cost-plus contracts, uh, 6% might be reasonable. Um, that might be 8% for T&M and could be 10 to 12% on uh, fixed-price contracts. So where can small businesses go to find out what is reasonable for a given contract? There is nowhere to go. Um, you just <laughs> have to look inwardly and figure out what what it is that, that you think that you need to do. It comes down to how competitive you think you have to be to win and, and, and what you're willing to do to win. Folks, we need to take a break. My guest today is Jed Kreitman, founder and CEO of Jed Forecast. When we come back, we'll be talking about the type of pricing documentation that is required in most cost volumes and forecasting. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Today's discussion is brought to you by Scale to Market, and your host is Shirley Collier. Utilizing the proprietary Davey Business Development Growth Framework, Scale to Market partners with business owners and executives to help their companies achieve profitable and sustainable growth in the federal marketplace. Email Shirley at scollier at scaletomarket.com to obtain your copy of the Davey Framework. Growthmasters Federal is a nationwide community of growth-oriented government contractors, their owners and executive teams, and the professionals who support them. The mission is to share experiences and discuss timely topics on planning and executing the most effective growth strategies in the complex, highly regulated, but opportunity-rich federal marketplace. And now back to Shirley's discussion with Jed Kreitman, founder and CEO of Jed Forecasts, on pricing federal proposals. Welcome back. Jed, you mentioned documentation earlier. What type of pricing documentation are you talking about? Accounting reports or a forecast to support proposed indirect rates, salary surveys, payroll records, contingent offer letters, and resumes to support proposed salaries, Department of Labor reports to support proposed escalation and, and things of that nature. Now, I've heard you talk about escalation in the bidding process. Can you explain what you mean by escalation and what are the best practices regarding determining proper escalation? 
Escalation is the year-over-year increases you apply to your pricing. It also represents the salary wage increases you plan for the staff. The Department of Labor provides a report each quarter on the salary escalation over the previous 12 months. Determining the escalation to use in the later years of the contract will be impacted by available economic forecasts, how competitive the opportunity is perceived to be, and known buying habits or the perception of what is desired by the client. That was a handful, Jed. <laughs> so uh, you said how competitive the opportunity is perceived to be. How do I determine how many others are bidding on a specific opportunity? If you go to the industry day for the opportunity, you, you can look around and, and see who's there. Or if it's posted on FedBizOps, then you'll have visibility into the interested vendors. Uh, once the proposal is underway, you can often get a good guess on the number of bidders by the number of obvious questions that are repeated for something that, that wasn't clear in the RFP. For, for example, how many pages are allowed for, the, for this section? And, and that's a, a good way sort of on the fly to get a feel for how many are, are also involved. Another source that I have used, Jed, if the opportunities are recompete, is to look at the contract records in FPDS, which will show the number of bidders the last time the contract was awarded. Uh, that doesn't always represent how many companies will compete this time, but it's sometimes a good data point. And you mentioned known buying habits or perception of what is desired by the client. This sounds like market intelligence. Um, how have you seen small businesses tune into this type of intel? You know, uh, business people in marketplaces learn their customers' likes and dislikes when it comes to proposals and pricing, and, and that evolves over time. And the knowledge normally comes by, by living it celebrating the wins and agonizing over the losses and, and debriefs every time uh, with the customer on a loss. And that's why it's so hard for small businesses to respond to a solicitation for the first time and not have a teaming partner or someone in their company who really knows the customer. So when should small businesses begin using these practices, in your opinion? When they're involved in competitive acquisitions as a prime that represent a material impact to their business. Give me an example. A company with a $1 million in annual revenue bidding a $200,000 job or a $10 million company bidding a $2 million job, both of those opportunities would, would have a material impact on the indirect rates of those companies. In contrast, a, a $200K job proposed by a $10 million company is is unlikely to have a material impact. Does it matter if the bid is firm fixed price versus cost plus? Do these principles still apply? Surely, I don't think the contract type matters in, in this context. Do these principles apply when you are bidding on a subcontract? It's possible, but rare. As a subcontractor, you have much less control and volume assumptions are, are often not warranted. But if you're bidding on a multi-year contract and you have a few key subcontractors, how do you address the issue controlling subcontractor rates? There is a conflict of motivation between the prime and subcontractors. 
The win for the prime could be transformational. It's not likely to be for the subs. As a prime, you need to provide target rates for the subcontractors and try to get them on board with your pricing strategy. It's a process, and I I think it's better if you share your rationale, um, then they're more likely to, to come around. But it takes a lot of talking and listening. And talking and listening should happen before they even sign a teaming agreement and not wait until it's time to submit the cost volume, right? Yeah, yeah. That I mean, that sounds good. But um, <laughs> And you do want to sort out as much as you can beforehand to make sure you've got a cooperative team. But those conversations continue all the way until the proposal is submitted. The government is issuing changes to the RFP while you're writing the response to it. Even a cooperative team can get confused, have different perceptions on what is required for the proposal, and even on what we've agreed to as far as rates and or hours. That was the case on a recent proposal effort that I was involved in where one subcontractor changed their rates towards the end of the proposal process, and another one was going to include all the hours in the RFP in their proposal instead of just the hours allocated to them. As the prime, if we didn't keep talking and coordinating with the subcontractors right until the end, the prime proposal and the subcontractor proposals would not have been in sync. Yeah, that makes sense. It's a lot of hard work writing and submitting proposals. So in your opinion, who in the company should be involved in the pricing volume of a proposal? The activity should be led by the finance staff, but the estimate should be provided from operations personnel who have the best understanding of the work and the people required to perform it. Management approval should occur at the level appropriate for the size of that opportunity. Jed, how would you describe the best practice in the industry regarding pricing that can be used by small businesses? Like it is often the case with best practices, it's really about establishing repeatable processes supported by objective tools and reviews. And what tools are you referring to? I'm talking about forecast tools to model the impact of an opportunity, pricing tools to develop the salary estimates based on the contract requirements, and then apply the indirect costs, fee, and escalation to build up those labor category rates. Now, Jet, I know that you're also a strong proponent of budgeting and forecasting. What role do these activities play when performing pricing on a bid? Well, they help us model the impact of the opportunity and plan for that impact. For example, we may consider whether we are going to need additional finance and contract support, and we want to model the impact of that at different levels. The forecast becomes the basis of our proposed indirect rates in our proposal. Let's explore this a little bit more, Jed. What are the elements of a good forecast? Best practice is forecasting by contract person and GL account. The challenge can be in constructing a forecast model that can collect all the detail and then roll it up to the pools, bases, rates, P&L, balance sheet, and statement of cash flow. Is there a particular software that you would recommend that helps small businesses with this task? Personally, I believe the best tool is still an Excel spreadsheet, but some clients 
are using the budget and forecasting functionality inside their government compliant accounting systems. Uninet is a very popular system these days and, and offers budgeting and forecasting capabilities. Procast is another system. They're moving to a new version, and they, they have planned uh, budgeting and forecasting for that system as well. Whether you prepare the budget inside or outside of your accounting system, you want to review the variances between actual results and budget and forecast on a monthly basis. It is how you learn about your organization and become a better budgeter and forecaster. If the accounting system has good management reporting, companies should upload their budget data and forecast data into the accounting system and utilize those reports. For companies whose accounting systems do not have good management reporting, then they can download that actual results data from their accounting system, integrate it with their budget forecast data, and create management reports. I like to build my budget and forecast models so that they collect the budget and forecast data in a way that sort of looks like transaction records in the general ledger. That way, it easily integrates with the accounting systems in their data. That's really good advice. So how often should forecasts be updated? Best practice is an annual budget and a quarterly reforecast. So what final advice would you give our listeners? Well, it's hard to know what the other bidders will bid. So your best chance is to bid your best price every time. Don't agonize too much about leaving money on the table. It is true, it is not my money, but but after you go through all the work of getting to the right DLs, wrap rate, fee, and escalation, the best way to lose is to go back and raise the DLs, wrap rate, fee, and escalation. And I've seen that happen so many times in small businesses. (laughs) Jed, this has been very informative. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with our audience today. Thank you, Shirley. I had a really great time talking with you. Folks, if you would like to get in touch with Jed, he can be reached at jed.kreitman at jedforecasts.com. That's J-E-D dot K-R-E-I-T-M-A-N at jedforecasts.com. Or you can reach out to us here at Skelter Market, and we'll make sure you're connected. This is Shirley Collier signing off for now. Thank you for joining us today. For more information on how to grow your business in the federal marketplace, visit our website at scaledtomarket.com. That's scaled2market.com. And subscribe to the Growth Masters Federal channel wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our webinar series on the Scale to Market website and join us again soon for another informative Growth Masters Federal podcast. Mm-hmm.